I invite you to remain standing if you're able for the reading of God's word. The sermon passage will be from Jude 17, 23, and it's printed in the bulletin. But I'd like to read first a really brief Old Testament text that will help give background to some things in this passage from Zechariah chapter 3. So hear now the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Our New Testament reading sermon passage is from the letter of Jude. But you must remember, beloved, predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, I will never forget my first year at college. When I first arrived, I had so many people, upperclassmen, other professors, that told me about this one professor that seemed to be everybody's favorite. Everybody loved his classes, his teaching methodology. And so I was really excited in the spring semester of my first year that I finally had this professor. And I was shocked when I went into the class. He was really cold and kind of standoffish, and it felt like everything that had been told to me up to that point was a lie. To make matters worse, he looked at our class on the first day, and he pointed blankly said, none of you will be false teachers. And I, I waited in eager anticipation to know how he was so certain about such a claim. And then he followed it up by saying, none of you guys are smart enough to be false teachers. <laughs> and as I've thought about this, this, this rings true. There's actually a profound truth to what the professor is saying here, is that false teachers are very wise and crafty people. They often appeal to some of the deepest desires of our hearts, wealth, happiness, success, all these things. They appeal to all these desires trying to get us in the door, but leave us with false promises and false hope that can't ultimately fulfill these things. And so what is the remedy to false teachers and false hope? We see that's exactly what Jude does in this passage today. He, this is, we'll look at Jude's final exhortation to his people in two points. We'll look at first the heed that he gives or the warning that he gives. And then finally, the hope that they have. So heed and hope. And so this passage falls right after a very long section of Jude warning his church, his hearers, about the presence of false teachers in their midst. He warns them about their character, the destructiveness of their teaching. And so the Christians have been the audience of this letter the whole time, but now Jude is shifting from focusing on warning them about the false teachers to now giving them hope and instruction for how they are to move forward, even as they are surrounded by these false teachers. So we notice the shift and the change of how Jude addresses the audience and that he gives them a different title. There's a real warmth and tone in the way that Jude speaks to the Christians here. He calls them beloved. Now I want to slow down and just meditate on this for a second. There's some difficult things that Jude calls Christians to do. 
and God's word. And so I don't want us to miss this title, that even as we're called to do these things, we do so as those who have been lavished in the love of Christ, as those who are God's children. We have been called beloved. That is who we are. Just put that in the back of your mind. Remember that as we go forward, that we are God's beloved people, even as we're called to do these things. And as God's people, he set them apart, and they've been given a distinct teaching in contrast to those of the false teachers. They're called to remember the predictions of the apostles of Christ Jesus. In contrast to the false teachers who have given them a certain set of teaching and doctrine, Jude calls them to come back to what they learned from the apostles. Really here, Jude is giving them a warning that there's false teachers in the midst, but he's also giving them a hope. He's saying that nothing here is surprised them. This was predicted by the apostles. They were taught that there would be false teachers. There would be people that would come and distort the gospel in their midst. And so Jude calls them to remember this as they are drawn to anxiety with the presence of these false teachers. He says, don't forget, we told you these things would happen. These were predicted. The train has not gone off the track. Stay the course. Nothing surprises God. He's watching over you. We warned you about these. Persevere in your faith. But then he goes on to further unpack what exactly the predictions were. Here particularly highlights the highly immoral character as found in the false teachers. He says that in these last times, there will be scoffers. What in the world is the last times? Does that mean that the world was going to end the next day after this letter was written? Really what Jude is getting at here is that he's showing the climactic nature of Christ's first coming. That started a new era in history, and we are awaiting the second coming of Christ. And so right now, we live in the in-between of those two things between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So this last days is really this reality we're really on the cusp of eternity where Christ will return and make a new heavens and a new earth and make all things new. But that time has not yet come. But it's as if we're living in the last times in anticipation of that. That's where we find ourselves. That's where Jude's hearers found himself. And so he said, in these times, there will be scoffers. Now, a scoffer is someone who lives in a highly immoral way. They live as if someone who scoffs at the reality that they will be held accountable for their wicked actions and judgments. This is someone who, if you told them, warning them of their sin, that they would scoff at this idea of accountability, that one day they will answer to a holy God for everything that they've done. It's unlikely that we need to use our imagination too strongly to think about exactly what type of people Jude is describing here people who really scoff at God's warnings and different things that he gives to them. But he says that they're not only scoffers, but they're those who follow their own ungodly passions. Particularly the way that Jude phrases this really highlights the highly immoral character of the false teachers. We all have passions. Some of our passions are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them are used to good ends. Some of them are not used to good ends. But particularly here, Jude rules out any sense of neutrality in the intentions and the passions of these false teachers. It's not only that they have passions in a neutral sense, but they are those who follow their ungodly passions. There's no sense in which we can look at the way that they live and describe it as godly living. Every passion, every desire that they have is against God's glory. It doesn't bring honor to God. It doesn't love and serve their neighbor. But Jude further goes on to highlight the destructiveness of their character. He says, it is these who cause divisions. Now, if you look at verse 12, there's something really striking about the way that Jude makes this accusation against the false teachers. He says there that the false teachers have been those who have been at the love feast with them. This would have been a meal that the church had. And so the implication of what Jude is saying here 
is that the false teachers have not broken out. They haven't left the church entirely and started their own church, but they're causing divisions from within the church. They're staying in the church and creating classes of different Christians and pinning them against different people based on their own self-imposed criteria. We don't exactly know how they were dividing Christians, what criteria they were using to distinguish people in different classes, but we do know that much to the detriment and health of the church that they've stayed in and they've started to separate people and put some Christians in some group and another in a different group, causing division and hostility even amongst God's people. We're also warned that they are worldly people This is a type of naturalism. This is a worldly living that focuses on just purely this material world as if it was all that there is. There's really an absence in their thinking of heaven or a higher reality of a thing to come. They live following the passions and the whim of this life. Whatever comes to them, whatever appetite of hunger comes to them, they follow those things. They live as if this world is all that there is, that there won't be a new heavens and a new earth. They're devoid of heavenly-mindedness, taking, forcing Christians not to think about the reality that's come, but wanting to draw their eyes more and more to the things of this world. Finally, and perhaps most strikingly, Jude warns that they are those who are devoid of the Spirit. This is evident in the fact that he's pointed out that they've denied the Holy Spirit in the way that they live. They don't have the fruit of the Spirit. They don't live as if those people who have self-control and gentleness and all these things. And so Jude very strikingly makes the claim that they are absolutely devoid of the Spirit. Basically, he's saying these people are not Christians. They've not been born again. They don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit living in them. It's really striking the way that Jude describes highly immoral character of the false teachers here and gives a warning to his people that this character can corrupt our churches and different things. There's no substitute for character. But what is really striking, I think, is that we need to not be too quick to point the finger just at unbelievers and false teachers for manifesting these traits that Jude has described. But I think if we're honest, some of the traits that Jude has described about the false teachers can be true of us in our hearts as well. We can live as worldly people, forgetting that we have a citizenship in heaven. We can lose our hunger for God by being so entertained with the things of this world. We can focus so much on political parties or finances or success or all these other things that make the appearance that we live as worldly people, as if this world is all that there is, that we're not destined for a better city, a new Jerusalem and heaven. We can also be those who cause divisions, even within the church. We can create our own self-imposed criteria of how we divide Christians, even in our midst, based on our own thinking, our own preferences, our own desires. So while Jude gives a heed to the people about the warning, the destructiveness of the false teachers, I think we should also take a heed in our own hearts as well as we evaluate the the real sin that remains in us, that we can be guilty of these things as well. Thankfully, Jude does not end his encouragement there to his hearers, but he also gives them not only a warning to watch out for these false teachers and their destructive character, but he also gives them reason for hope as well, as we see in our second point. So again, we we notice the change that he calls, he marks them out as God's beloved people. But particularly, they're not only distinguished in the title that they're given as God's people, but they're also distinguished in their character and their living in contrast to the false teachers. In contrast to the false teachers who divide and who live as worldly people, Jude calls his hearers 
to keep themselves in the love of God. This is what the Christians are to do. If they're to preserve, they are to keep themselves in the love of God. I'd like to just pause here and just clarify something. Jude here calls his people to keep themselves in the love of God. But if you look in verse 1 and in verse 24, there both Jude reminds them of the reality that's true, that they are those who are kept for Christ Jesus. It's not as if Jude here is contradicting himself, but he's saying in, the, in light of the reality that you have been set apart in Christ, that you've been kept in Christ, now follow, obey his commandments out of gratitude. Keep yourself in the love of God. Walk in his ways. We love because God first loved us. That's the order that Jude follows here. We don't keep ourselves in the love of God for the basis of our acceptance, but because we've been accepted in his love already. But how are we to keep ourselves in the love of God? Jude starts in verse 20 and gives three ways we are to do this. He says, first, you're to build yourself up in your most holy faith. In contrast to the false teachers who have their own message, their own set of doctrine, Jude calls them to go back to the faith that was once delivered to them, that when they were first became Christians, the message of the gospel that they heard, the Christian faith that was delivered to them as a church. They're not called to not think critically about their faith, but he calls them to go back to the doctrine that you were taught. Really here, this is their common salvation. Jude calls them to focus on the message of the gospel, that the hope of forgiveness of sins for sinners in Christ is what he calls them to come back to. And so what we see here is that the hope and the message of the gospel is really the foundation of the church. It's not as if when we hear the gospel as first Christians, then we graduate from that in our lives and move on to other things. But really, we need the gospel as much today as we did in the first day we believe. We never graduate from the gospel. We need the gospel, the good news of God's mercies being new for us each and every morning, every day. And so that's what Jude calls his people to do. He calls them to think about this, this most holy faith that the church has been given. Think about the pure doctrine, the hope that we have in the gospel in contrast to the twisted teaching of the false teachers and build the foundation of your doctrine on the good news, the hope of forgiveness in Christ. But Jude also calls them to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'd like to just slow down as I've tried to think about exactly what Jude is trying to say. What does it exactly mean that we're praying in the Holy Spirit? We want to recognize that we ought to pray in a Trinitarian way as we have a triune God, but we also want to be careful about how we define exactly what it means to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Five different Christians could interpret this in five different ways. There are a variety of different ways that this could be interpreted. So one popular interpretation is that this means that Christians are being called to pray in tongues as they pray in the Holy Spirit. Particularly more Pentecostal people will take that interpretation of this verse. I think given the context, that's highly unlikely what Jude is getting at here. I think actually if we look at verse 19, it helps us to understand exactly what Jude means about what it means to be praying in the Holy Spirit. As he's drawing out the contrast between the way they are to live in contrast with the false teachers, he reminds them in the verse before that the false teachers are devoid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not present in their life. And so one of the things this means really is that Jude is just calling them as Christians to pray in the Holy Spirit. Truly Christians have the third person, the Trinity, that dwells in them. And in his work of regenerating us and and adopting us, we are able now to call God our Father in prayer. We know that that's a work of the Spirit. So it's in part because the Spirit has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be sons and daughters of the living God that we're able to pray in the Spirit because of the work that he's already done in us. 
but also prayer is the thing of faith. Prayer shows our dependence on God as a needy people. And in the midst of these false teachers, Jude here is calling themselves to keep themselves in the love of God by showing reliance in God on prayer and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't tell them to muscle up and to keep themselves in the love of God purely by their own strength, but relying on God in prayer and fostering our love for God in prayer and communion with him daily. And so a very similar phrase about praying in the Holy Spirit is found in Ephesians 6, 18. And there Paul is talking about putting on the whole armor of God and being ready for all the things that the, the devil and the sin can come against you. And there, really, Paul is showing them to show their dependence in prayer, to be praying in all types of circumstances for all types of things. And so here, really, as, as they are called to preserve Jude calls them to pray in all types of circumstances, showing their reliance on the Holy Spirit in prayer. We are to rely on the Holy Spirit in prayer because he is the one who intercedes for us in prayer with groans too deep for words. So as we pray in the Holy Spirit, we show our reliance on God in all circumstances, always praying to him in the midst of dangers and trials of false teachers. But then finally, they are to keep themselves in the love of God as those who are waiting for mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is a forward-looking hope. He really puts this in the last times. It's the waiting for this and this day, this consummation that leads to eternal life. And really the striking thing here that we can't miss is that as Jude writes this to Christians, that as they wait for that last day where there will be a judgment of all people, that Jude reminds them that this is the day of mercy for God's people. It's not a day of fear or judgment or wrath, but because of God's mercy to us in Christ Jesus, we are to wait for the mercy that is to come. This is the hope of the gospel, that we are not treated as our sins deserve, that though we are unrighteous, that we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that though we deserve his wrath, that God in our place took our wrath and guilt at the cross and was raised again, freeing us from the bondage of our sin. And the great reality is that now this day, that should be a day where we deserve everlasting damnation, because of the mercy of God, is now a day that we receive eternal life because of Christ Jesus. For God's people, this is a glorious day. This is a day of hope. A couple things that the Westminster Larger Catechism recognizes that will happen for God's people on this day is that we will be openly acknowledged. We will stand before our Heavenly Father and we will be known by name before him. We won't be a stranger to him, but be known as his children. And we will be openly acquitted. We will be forgiven for all our sins. We will be welcomed into his glorious presence as ones clothed in Christ's righteousness. And then finally, beloved, it says we will be filled with inconceivable joy. This is a great and glorious day that we can look forward to as God's people solely because of the mercy that we have received in Christ. Not because of anything that we've done, because of our righteousness, that we were better than our neighbors, but because Christ has loved us and shown us mercy. This is a day of hope for God's people. Having received such a great mercy, Jude also calls his people to look outward and to be merciful to others. There are three different groups of people that Jude calls them to be merciful to, and we'll look at those very briefly. He says, first, have mercy on those who doubt. 
This is really people who are in the congregation who have not yet fully followed the false teachers, but they're having questions, they're having some doubts. They might be a little tempted to follow the false teachers and abandon the faith that was delivered to them. And instead of beating them over the head with our doctrine or telling them that you should know better, you shouldn't be asking these questions, Jude calls us to be merciful to these people who are doubting in their faith. He calls us to walk alongside them in truth and love and nourish them in the hope that is ours in Christ. Secondly, he calls the second group to save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is a group of people who has left and actually followed the false teachers. They've been persuaded by their teachings, and now they're in warning of the judgment fire. I read the Zechariah 3 as a helpful background because that's exactly what we see happens in that passage. That Why exactly does Jude call his hearers to be merciful to people already in danger of the judgment fires? And we are to show mercy to those who are in danger of these things because we serve a God who is merciful to those who are in danger of the judgment fire. His arm is not too short to rescue anyone from the judgment that is to come. He is a merciful God. He is a God who has saved us from the judgment to come. Zechariah 3 is such a powerful text in showing the true love and grace that Christ has for sinners. And I just want to encourage anyone, if you're here today, if you've not come before Christ or you're struggling to feel that God really loves you, Just know that God has seen your filthy garments. He's seen all those things that we're we're so ashamed of, those sins that we've never confessed, those desires that we're so ashamed to share with even our closest loved ones. God has seen all those things. And instead of pronouncing a word of condemnation and judgment upon you, he takes away our sin, our filthy garments, and replaces them with robes of righteousness in Christ Jesus. It is so tempting, it is so easy to water down how much God loves his people, how much he loves sinners. And this is why we need God's word. It tells us how clearly God has loved us and his son, Christ Jesus. And it's evident as the forgiveness of sins. God is not disgusted by you. He loves you as as you are his son and daughter. He has seen all your filthy garments, all the sin. There's not an accusation of the evil one that he's not heard a million times and yet he still chooses to pronounce you as righteous and forgiven, and his son, Christ Jesus. Finally, Jude calls them to be merciful to the false teachers themselves. This is quite striking. I think it's often tempting in my own heart to think about the false teachers of our day, and why are we to show them mercy? I mean, they are leading so many people in so many destructive ways, so why are we called to show them mercy? But again, It stems from this reality that we serve a merciful God and that our mercy is even to extend to the false teachers themselves. Those who distort the gospel, those who lead God's people astray, we are to walk with them in mercy and hope that they will turn from their false teaching, from their false beliefs. But Jude here is not naive. He does not call them to do this. He does not not call them, as one commentator says, to transform mercy into acceptance of their false teaching. But he reminds them to do this with fear. They're to do this with reverence, with a sober-mindedness, lest they also be persuaded by the false teachers themselves. And furthermore, he highlights the carefulness they need to have in approaching the false teachers and reminding them that they are to hate even the garment that's stained by the flesh. 
Here, Jude is not being superstitious that if they get too close to the false teachers, they accidentally touch their cloak, that somehow that sin will transfer to them. But really, Jude is showing the power of how corrupting sin can be, that as we're around people with destructive character, that that sin can easily become contagious to us and our living and our thinking and all these things. This is a difficult passage to reflect on as we think about these realities in our own day. The fact that there's a warning, there's such a large portion of this letter that's devoted to a warning about the destructiveness of the false teachers is very sobering. And as we look around in our day and age, we know that we are not exempt from false teachers, that they're still very much in our midst, they're still very much in our stream of culture influencing people and leading them astray. It is a hard reality that there is a heed and a warning. Yet, beloved, there's also a hope that we're given because just the dangers and the trials of this life is not all that there is. But Jude gives them an everlasting hope, a looking forward to a day where we'll be united with our God in perfect harmony and glory in a reality devoid and absent of sin and destructive character and false teaching. Purely, we'll just see the light of our God and be with his people. But even as we wait for that day, even as we exist and wait for the full consummation of the new heavens and a new earth, we are reminded to be sober-minded in the way we think about the warnings that Jude gives us, that we're not to be naive, that we're to think about these things with clarity. But we're also reminded that as we wait for that last day, the day of mercy in Christ Jesus, that we are those who are kept in Christ Jesus. He will sustain us He's able to keep us and present us before our God blameless. He's our great shepherd who will lead us to everlasting waters of living life. No one, not one of his sheep will be snatched from his hand. As we wait for that last day, Christ, our great shepherd, will sustain us. And on that great day, he will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It is his joy to present you blameless and faultless before his heavenly father and our heavenly father. As we wait for this God, what more can we say that glory be to him, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God, and we thank you for the reality that we are your sons and daughters, that we can call on you as our Father, that you know that we are a frail, a sinful, a weak, a needy people. Yet, Lord, you are not despised by us. Yet you sent your Son to take on our flesh, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve and was raised again. And Lord, we're so thankful for the everlasting hope and life that we have because of your son, Christ Jesus. We could never have done this on our own, but are thankful to receive this gift in faith. We pray that you would make us a merciful people, Lord, that as we have been lavished in your mercy, that we would look outward towards our neighbors who are not trusting in you and be merciful to them, walking alongside them in truth and love, sharing the good news of the gospel to them, and hope that they might also be snatched from the judgment that is to come. We pray that you would keep us, keep us uh, sober-minded, Lord, as we have the reality of false teachers even in our own age. Would you not help us think less about the hope that is ours, but more coming back to the great news of the gospel each and every day in the midst of these false teachings that would twist that message. Would you sustain your church, Lord? We thank you that you keep us in your arms as our great shepherd. We pray and ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name.
on that. 